Welcome back to the EFM podcast, where we are seeking to create missional conversations to inspire and equip the local church, your church, for a global impact. We've got a real treat today with a fellow on the fields worker, Jake Litchfield. He has just returned from Thailand. And so I wanted to spend some time to get to introduce him to our EFM family, and then also kind of get a little bit of an idea of what's going on in Thailand, what motivates the work there in Thailand, and how you can be an active participant in praying for and supporting the work of uh, evangelistic faith missions in Thailand. So it's good to have Jake Litchfield with us. Jake has been serving in Thailand now for five years. He's had a few kids born uh, since he's been on the field. And how many of them were born in Thailand? Two. Two kids born in Thailand. That's great. And so he's, uh, he's done his time. You know, it's really cool when we get to send new field representatives out into a place. But if you've studied cross-cultural ministry at all, uh, you know that the first two years are really crucial. And Unfortunately, the vast majority of cross-cultural servants don't normally make it past two years. So by the time that uh, Jake and his family had joined us, they'd kind of been through the boot camp that washes most people out. So we're getting some very uh, qualified, very experienced people to come onto the EFM team, and I'm really excited they're here. Uh, So Jake, uh, welcome aboard. Welcome to the team. I want to talk to you a little bit about your time in Thailand and kind of why you're there First thing I'd like to kind of open up the discussion with is the overall motivation for missions. In times past, it seemed as though one of the dominant motivators was a a good, healthy concern for lost people that if they didn't hear the gospel message, they were going to hell. And so people responded to that and say, well, if they're going to go to hell, let them go to hell over my dead body and let's do our best to get between them and hell and hopefully turn them around. Uh, more recently, there's been a lot of publications and, and theology and thought in the cross-cultural field about the glory of God. We want to go to missions because that is what God calls us to. It's how God is glorified. And so we glorify Christ among the nations. So speak to that and how you fit into that. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think I would have first started hearing about the glory of God being motivation for missions in relation to a very self or human-centered gospel that says we need to go save them. They're miserable creatures. We don't want them to go to hell and suffer, so we'll go for their own their own good. And so there was a knee-jerk reaction perhaps to that, um, maybe specifically in, in Calvinist circles. And I think it's it's good to a point. I think it's right that our ultimate goal is for God and his glory. Then what comes next is what does that mean? What does that look like for us to seek for God's glory? God cares about people. We don't want to talk about numbers too much, but God cares about numbers. Each person is is more than a number. So numbers matter. Uh, people matter. Individuals matter. And it's God is glorified when people are saved. Now, the whole idea of uh, the fear of hell, I would say, is not 
ultimately, it's an okay motivation, but it's not the top motivation we should have either for seeking to win the lost or for the lost to come to Christ. It's used in Scripture. Fear, the fear of God does bring people to Christ, and that's fine. But ultimately, they need to come with a heart for truth. They look at the truth. This is the gospel. I'm a sinner, and Christ deserves my, my, uh, my life. He's given his life for me, and they come in faith. It's a good tension. I think both need to be there. God is glorified through the saving of sinners from hell, uh, so I think both of them kind of fit together there. I do think it's a false dichotomy. It can be both and, and if we use one to the exclusion of, a, of the other, we're going to miss something there. Now, you, you did say something interesting about they need to come on the basis of truth, and I want to come back to that idea of truth and, and how that plays itself out in your, your ministry there in Thailand. But before we get there, let's talk about Thailand. Now, I was um, in my country of service going to language school, and the topic of Thailand came up, and my language teacher uh, was also a cross-cultural servant, and he just kind of threw out this bit of news to me. I was still kind of young and green. I said, oh, yeah, Thailand, and specifically the city of Chiang Mai, is a, a missions hub. And that kind of struck me because I've always thought of Thailand as being a place of you know, great need. It's in the middle of the 1040 window. And I don't really think of them as being uh, receiving a whole lot of missionaries. But as I've been more experienced, I've seen that they've got missions has been a part of their history for a while. And yet there's still a good need there. So I'd like you to kind of open up that discussion for us and tell us how and, and why and where you fit into that. Sure. So, yes, it is true that the first missionaries came to Thailand in 1828. So we're going on 200 years since the first missionaries came to Bangkok. Now, those two first missionaries were, were aiming at ministering to the Chinese, um, and there was some resistance from the Thais at the time. So you could say it's, it's less time than that, but it's been a long time that uh, the gospel scriptures being translated has been in Thailand. So where's the fruit? That's, you know, we, we look at almost 200 years of mission work, and we're looking at half of 1% evangelical. Yes, there's thousands of missionaries serving in Thailand, and many of them are in these larger cities, specifically Chiang Mai is a huge one where there's many, many missionaries. So it begs the question, what have we been doing? What have we as a church been doing to reach the Thai people, and it's it's a very good question, and a, I think probably a common one that people have asked about Thailand. When I look at the needs there, it's already been on my heart the burden for the church specifically. How do we equip the church in such a way that they are mission minded? And we look at the epistles. It's interesting. Much of the material in the epistles is Paul and the other epistle, the apostles straightening things out in the churches. Mm -hmm. There's this focus on being something before they do something. And if there isn't the proper fruit in, in works, then we know there's a problem behind that in who, they, who the church is. So going back to the root of things, we look at the fruit in Thailand. We see there's a lack of evangelism. And even the evangelism that's being done is not bearing the fruit that it should. The gospel is the power of God to save in every culture, every place, every context. 
So the church needs to look at themselves first. I think it's part of the reason that the epistles are so focused on this is because if the church is what they're called to be, then they will be mission-minded, they'll care for the lost, and they'll win the lost. They'll have a testimony that's beyond words. It'll be their life and their words. So I think that's lacking, and we know it's lacking because the fruit is lacking. The fruit of evangelism in general, there's many that do not even share their faith. They're there for IT work, or maybe they're just translating, but they're in the context of the culture, but don't share the, their faith. So we as the church, as missions, we failed in that way. And the church that is there, very shallow in, in many of the places where there is a church. One, one example of that would be a friend of ours who came to our house and we gave her a children's Bible story book. And she opened it up and started looking at the illustrations at the pictures. And she began asking about different pictures in the Bible and asking, what is this story? What is this story? She didn't know what Moses in the basket, who Moses in the basket was, Jesus turning water into wine. She, she didn't recognize these stories, even though she'd been in the church for several years. So whatever's being taught, it's not deep, it's not comprehensive, it's uh, shallow. And I've had one native there tell me that much of the teaching is on the gifts of the Spirit and on worship. And so they've adopted much of the Western way of worship, worship teams, and that sort of thing. So the church needs revived. The church needs to look inward first at themselves. Yes, the ties are complacent. They're not interested in, in Christianity to a large degree, but there would be a more powerful witness if the church were, was where it's supposed to be. Okay, you said a lot of cool things there I'd like to pick up on. So, I would, I'd, first off, I want to affirm about the, the mentality of believers in the church or the level of discipleship. And there is a sense in which we do stress a lot of high-level doctrine, you know, like the doctrine of separation from the world, the doctrine of entire sanctification. We want to train people in Trinitarian theology. I mean, all that stuff is good. And I think it's it's incumbent upon us as believers in any place and culture. But I will affirm that my experience has been very similar <laughs> to what you've seen in uh, in your place. I remember I was talking to a second generation believer. So this guy had grown up in the church, and he came to our house on a Saturday afternoon, and he did not even understand the story of King Ahab. So I had to go back and and just kind of get him up to speed in this Bible study we were having with Ahab and Elijah and Elisha. And I thought, you know, I, my parents took discipleship pretty seriously. <laughs> While we, we are going to get to the spots where we talk about the high-level theology, when we're talking about a burden for the underdeveloped disciples, uh, this is not merely about doctrine or standards, or theology. This is about rudimentary, very basic. I mean, we're talking about Hebrews chapter 5. You guys are still on uh, milk, and you should be on meat. Uh, so it's very, very crucial that we we do address the milk issues so we get beyond the, the, the milk issues because the milk issues are still not quite being dealt with. Now, you mentioned something there. You said we need, or the church there needs revival. And I like that. One of the things that I've tried to emphasize 
with part of who we are at EFM or we are revivalistic people. Uh, that has been our heritage and that's, that's been our theology as a, as a, a greater movement. And that's been what gave birth to our organization in the first place. And if we lose that, we might as well go join another organization. That's, in my opinion, very essential to who we are. How does revival fit into what I also see there as a, a great need of basic discipleship? I think the word revival and the word reformation maybe could be put together there where there's a need not just for, when we think of revival, we think of emotional meetings, we think of conviction of sin, and that's important. There's a need for the sin issue to be taken care of, and that's really the root of it. But also a reformation in a love for the Word of God, which it starts with heart condition. A person who loves the Lord will love God's Word. People that don't know how to read, if they're hungry, they'll learn to read, to read the Bible, if they're hungry. And yet, Thailand has multiple versions of the Bible, and yet it's not being read. It's there, it's available. So, when I talk about revival, I'm talking about the whole person being changed from the bottom up. And so, are we teaching on sin, that sin separates us from God, or or is it these other surface issues of gifts of the Spirit, things that are novel, that are exciting. There needs to be more teaching on how how do I live for Jesus every day? How do I walk with Jesus? How do I live in consistent victory over sin? That's a thing to actually, to bring that up, that's a thing that needs to be taught, needs to be realized personally. Good. Okay, so we know there's a big need. Uh, we need that infilling of the, the life of the Spirit to bring about vivification and revivification uh, and discipleship. So we're talking about how do we present the gospel in a, uh, a hostile environment or a new environment or a place where they are worshiping other gods. So so right away, that's going to bring us up to uh, this, this whole idea that we're not fighting against men, flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and powers and spiritual forces and of wickedness in high places. One of the things that is striking to a lot of people when you get over there in some of these countries is the prevalence of idolatry. Every home, every business, every vehicle has got an idol stuck in it somewhere. Now in Thailand, they also have little spirit houses, as one of our friends has said, de- demon houses, right in front of every, every, every property has got these things. So Talk to me a little bit about what spiritual warfare or engagements, what they've, what they've looked like, and kind of bring somebody from the West who's never seen or experienced, uh, you know, if they were to step into Thailand, what would they experience, and how does the gospel fit into that? So our first clear encounter with spiritual darkness was right in our home with one of our girls waking up almost every morning at the same time with nightmares, just starting to scream or cry. And it was almost like clockwork, about six in the morning. And it was it was strange, like, why is this happening? So we began to pray, and there was kind of this back and forth tug of war, where it would go away after we prayed for a bit, and then it would come back and it would start happening again. Same, why she was the one, I don't know. She's maybe sensitive. So we found that we had to pray we began to pray every single night for God's protection 
against the powers of darkness. Now, a question was, why didn't God just answer our prayer and from here on out, we're good? But there's many things that we pray for on a regular basis that we trust the Lord for, but we continue to ask over and over again for our daily bread. So this was something that we've continued to this day. With rare exception, we, we pray every single night for God's protection. And it was necessary, we found it necessary. So that's one thing. Us and others have sensed a spiritual darkness there. There's a heaviness that has to be overcome in that environment. You have a culture that has been under the power of animism, uh, the spirit worship, and Buddhism for centuries without interruption. You're going to have spiritual darkness, spiritual strongholds. So one another example from a Thai person coming to the United States, now everybody's experience is going to be different, but this is an interesting example of someone coming from Thailand. He came to the United States and he stopped and he said, I'm not fighting anything here. I fought something my whole Christian life while in Thailand, but he felt there was a certain lift or freedom here in the United States that he hadn't felt ever before in his Christian life. So there is difference in the way that spiritual darkness manifests, and there is something to be said for a history in the U.S. of biblical principles that have had their way in the culture it makes a difference on the spiritual spiritual field. And so it is something that needs to be recognized when you're living in a place like that. You pray for it. You, you, uh, you pray against the powers of darkness, um, asking for the Lord's protection and for the blindness that Satan brings to be lifted. And that's an important part as well as far as evangelism goes or the church, that Satan has a stronghold in people's hearts and minds in a way that perhaps he wouldn't elsewhere because they've given themselves over to this stuff. It's real. When you step into these places, it's it's different, and you can sense the, the heaviness. And it, it strikes me, Ephesians 4 says that, that they have been darkened in the understanding of their minds because of the hardness in their hearts, the refusal to, to respond in faith. And that really does have tremendous practical applications. One thing I like to point out from Romans 1 is this stepping down further and further into sin. It started with not recognizing God as God. But one of the interesting things, there's two things in that passage. One is that in refusing the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, they lose their own ability to think. Our ability to reason properly is wrapped up in how we receive God's truth, truth about who God is. And the same with dignity. We see cultures in America's in this place as well that we lose our decency and dignity when we reject who God is. So we see that our, our wisdom, our ability to think and reason is wrapped up in how we respond to the knowledge of God. You just said they lose their ability to think. Okay, he just said the quiet part out loud, but it's it's true. It's in agreement with what you've heard from Scripture in Romans 1 and Ephesians 4. And it's serious. We are we are seeing this in our own country in the last 20 years, a radical degradation of thought. Unfortunately, we are stepping backwards in time to what has been there in some of these cultures now for thousands of years. Now, this doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean that they are unintelligent. But it does mean that the God of this world has blinded them. And if we're not receiving the light of the gospel, there are, there are effects for that. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, you saying what needs to be said there. We're talking about people that are in a different culture. They've had a gospel presence. There's still less than 1% uh, 
evangelical believers, and we've got a lot of discipleship to do there. So how do we communicate the gospel to them? They do have capacity to think, but there's obviously some spiritual darkness that goes along with all of this. There's contextualization, there's honor shame. How do you plan to, and how have you been, introducing the gospel into a context like that? Well, there's two important parts to sharing the gospel, and they both, if they're not together, it creates a gap. And one is a life, a life of godliness, and the other is words that confirm or that speak out of that life. It's much more powerful and real if the life speaks. And in Thailand, I've had a Thai believer tell me that they don't really respond to teaching or doctrine so much as they respond to actions in life. And I think that's important in Thailand specifically and perhaps elsewhere in Asia where they can reason. They're often their reasoning is based on experience. They've had an experience with the power of God and some other God, some other spirit who they consider to be God. They've had this experience and that trumps what they may think or how they may reason. So reason is not, it's a little harder to get at them with, with just straight reason leading from one step to the other. If this is true, this is true, this is true. But the gospel, the truth of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The foolishness of preaching brings about fruit, brings about salvation. But I would add that other part in there, especially in these contexts where reason is not used as much in, in spiritual matters, that they need to see a life. They're impressed by a life, not just individual life, but also family. Family life is a powerful witness and the life of the church together. As Jesus said, if, if they see the oneness, then they'll know that Jesus has been sent. So those three parts, there needs to be a three-part witness on individual family and church, and both words and life, preaching the gospel. Okay, so you, you mentioned there they don't like to reason through their religious experience, and, and I understand some of our more sensitive listeners might get offended at that. Sorry, that's just life. I have asked people in, again, my country of service, why do you believe what you believe? And the answers have been very, very unprofound and quite banal. I mean, they've been, we, well, we believe this because this is what our heritage is. It's what our you know, parents believe. And if we don't believe it, we're going to get persecuted. So therefore, we do believe it. Those may be valid reasons for personally getting along with the crowd, but that does not establish the universality of truth. So that's, that is a, a dangerous spot to be in when you're thinking about your eternal destiny. So it's really important that that they are confronted in some sense with what the gospel provides. Now, you know, we can talk about high-level theology and talk about sanctification and the definition of sin and what does it mean to to walk in the light, and we get to that. But my way of illustrating that is it's kind of like trying to explain uh, trigonometry to a second grader. They don't have the capacity at that point to understand that. Do we want to get them there? Well, if it's math class, we probably do. For them to get to that level, we've got to walk with them and we've got to create that context, that life-to-life context that you were talking about so that they can have room to understand why do we discipline and, and uphold the uh, the law of God in the home and, in, and how does it reflect in peace in a way that the other homes without God don't? Well, they've got to see how the gospel works, the benefits of the gospel, 
and that creates context through which the seeds of the gospel can then germinate. Another aspect of sharing the gospel with a culture like Thailand is, once again, is the context of their, their thought. When they do think about doctrine, when they think about teaching, you say the word sin, it does not mean the same thing to them. And so sharing the gospel needs to, at times, be a conversation. What do you think sin is? What is sin? Uh, what's eternal life? Who is God? These questions may have answers in their own minds that are completely false, so there needs to be an interaction. So we often think of preaching the gospel as this monologue, I'm going to share the gospel with you. This is the gospel. But in their mind, it gets all jumbled up with a preconceived idea of these terms. So it's important to have that. That's part of relationship is conversing with people and not just preaching at them. So that's an important part in Thailand. Yeah, that's another uh, another whole discussion there, uh, not just part of the the process, but introducing the gospel, the, the whole community, the collectivist culture that is often part of Eastern cultures. People aren't willing to think individually, you know, what do I have to do? Here I stand. Uh, they're thinking about the community. So when we have that conversation, we're giving them community. And so they're starting to to see that context, that community open up. And I think, too, that's, that's something very strategic so that we're not looking for just individual converts, but we're looking for discipleship within a communal context where it, it can even start its own church. Uh, go ahead and talk to me about that. Well, this has been more or less successful in Thai church history where they go into a community and with maybe specifically tribal people, the question is, are we, do we want to accept this? Well, we got to talk to this other chief from the other, from the other village. We need to do this together, uh, which is kind of foreign to our individualistic mindset. But God has used that whole people group movements. And so in those cultures, there needs to be work towards bringing in whole families and communities together rather than just focusing on individuals because that's the way they work. It's the way they think is in a community, how do we do, we do things. So as we wrap this up, uh, you're here in the States and we've got people here that want to support. Now we all know that, that they can give, uh, they can give through EFM. They can pray for the, the ministry there. Strongly encourage anybody that's uh, interested so far to invite you to speak at their church and get to know you and your lovely family up front and personal. Uh, but talk to me about some other potential ways where people could be involved directly or indirectly in reaching the Thai people. Well, you can go. God may be calling you to go yourself. We, we want more laborers, more committed believers who are going to go and make disciples. Many different occupations are needed to enter these fields where, especially in other countries, Thailand is not so much this way, but there's a certain amount of creativity in getting into countries. Uh, certain occupations can get in and others cannot. In Thailand, there's freedom of religion. If you have a heart for te Bible teaching, heart for teaching children, a heart for teaching English, that's your place of work, your, your occupation, or even, I think even nursing is an, op an option, maybe a certain context. Short-term or long-term, there, there are needs there, and we welcome people to come visit, see what it's like. Short-term missions trip really made a difference in my life in bringing me to Thailand, and it can for young people as well. 
So we invite people to come and visit, see the field, and also certainly prayer. Okay, so let me just change the focus just a little bit. Suppose somebody says, I'm interested. I'm not sure I'm ready to go yet, but while I'm thinking about it, maybe there are some opportunities close to home. Uh, so let's suppose you go to the, I went to the a hotel a year or two ago and the lady said she was from Thailand. It's like, oh, wow, that's cool. If I find myself in that situation, what do I do? The number two, how do I get to find those situations? Where are they at? Well, you could learn a little bit of Thai. That always impresses someone when you when you put some effort into learning their language. So say, so what the learn to say hello and how are you in Thai, that will surprise them and it will probably bless them. So what the Yes, so what the So being in a different culture, hearing their own language, somebody is making an effort to connect with them on their level. That's a neat thing. Study Buddhism, specifically Theravada Buddhism. It's a different branch uh, than Chinese Buddhism. Learn, it'll help you learn how they think and how to speak to them in a way that's meaningful in regard to the gospel and other things. Uh, their life is wrapped up in their religion, so helps helps you know how to reach them in that way. Where to find them? A lot of them come over to start businesses such as restaurants, Thai food restaurants. Just look up in Google, Thai restaurants in, in my area. Uh, you may find one and occasionally go there and make a connection with them. Speak to them and build a relationship. Once again, re relationship is important or they'll come over as students. So those are the two most common ways I know that you can connect with the Thai people. The Thai food is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite ethnic food of all the international flavors I've tasted. So listeners, if you haven't been to a Thai restaurant, you, you just got to go. You need to eat Indian and you need to eat Thai. You've not tasted what food is capable of being until you've had these two, <laughs> two basic food groups. Now, for those of you who love spice, you're going to be in spice heaven. For those of you who have a more tender palate, you're going to have to ask them to tone it down, but they can tone it down and still retain flavor, and it's delicious. All right, any closing words you'd like to offer here, Jake? Yeah, we have been blessed to be in Thailand and blessed to join with EFM and their, their vision. We're thankful to have found a, a mission who has similar vision for discipleship and training godly leaders and so we've been very blessed in the past year. We just joined last year and thankful for all those who are praying for us already. We've not met you. You've not met us. But you've seen our picture and you prayed for us. You've given money. And uh, God bless you for that. We're thankful for that team. It means a lot to know that there's a team around you and behind you, even if you don't know them, that are supporting you in prayer. So that means a lot. I want you to know that. Thank you. All right, thanks. Okay, this has been the EFM podcast, and we've had a special guest, Jake Litchfield, on with us. Again, I want to encourage you, if you haven't had invited him to speak to your church, you're going to want to jump on the opportunity. So call our office as soon as you can, uh, because their schedule is going to be filling up here, and they've only got seven months. So you're going to want to get to meet him and his lovely wife and five kids, and it'll be a blast. Until next time... Keep shining.